and now straight. He's a machine. Show me. everybody and welcome to the cinema psych podcast the podcast where psychology meets film i am your host dr alex swan and today's episode is a close one to my heart because 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 the matrix films are so very close to my heart uh, there's a little bit of a personal story in um why i love the matrix film franchise so much and and really that first movie for really sparking a kind of imagination in me. Well, the 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 close thing to my heart is that uh the Matrix films are the reason my wife and I met. Like literally the reason why uh she and I met. Uh we uh have a shared interest in the Matrix. Granted, the fandom was a lot stronger 20 years ago. <laughs> you know, that's that's odd thing to say. But uh, yeah, g- granted, 20 years ago. Um, so, you know, the first movie came out in 1999, The Matrix. And then in 2003, the Wachowski siblings, now sisters, released the second and the third one, The Matrix Reloaded and The Matrix Revolutions. And just this year, wait, no, I guess technically 2021, not this year anymore, because this this episode is being recorded and will come out in 2022. So uh, last year, in December, they released the fourth of uh, the franchise, the fourth film of the franchise, The Matrix Resurrections. Uh, so, and that was directed by Lana Wachowski, uh, one of the, one of the two sisters. So we have four films in the film franchise and, and this episode is really going to focus on the first one primarily. I'll mention things about how ideas and themes and psych concepts go from one film to the next, but really it all stems from that first film, most of the narrative and the concepts and all sorts of those things come from that first movie that we'll dive in that we'll dive in uh, into in the next segment. So this film is very this film and these films are very important to me. I will say, though, that even though uh, it just came out, there is a spoiler alert for Matrix Resurrections or excuse me, The Matrix Resurrections. So um, I'm going to spoil it because I'm disappointed in it. I'm very disappointed in it. It should not have been made. I don't know if I've read a good rationale as to why it was made. I think the story ended, the story as we knew it, ended with Revolutions, the third one. 
I don't know what this movie adds to the lore in a way that makes sense of the previous three films. Like there's not, it sort of undo undoes some of the aspects of the previous three films. So I wasn't really a fan of how they did it. And I feel like the ending, if you saw the movie, I feel like the ending ended abruptly. It just ended. There's, there's nothing there that says, okay, this story was wrapped up. It's, it, it, it feels like a Matrix 5 was going to be there. <laughs> or maybe even a 5 and a 6 to continue the story. But I, I honestly don't think that is the case. And with the poor box office return, the loss of money that Warner Brothers took to make this fourth movie, uh, there's definitely not going to be a fifth movie. <laughs> Uh, if I know movie business, that's pretty much the case. That is pretty much the case. So, like I said, it was directed by the Wachowski siblings. So, in 1999, they were the Wachowski brothers. They are trans women, and so their pronouns are she, her. We're going to get into the um, the trans gender allegory that makes up really the backbone of this set of films. So we're going to get into that in the next segment. That's the the one that I'm putting definitely at the top. So going through transition in 19, you know, in the late nineties through the two thousands and came out as trans. Um, I want to say shortly after or around the time that the second and third movie uh, came out. So early, mid 2000s, somewhere around there. So Lana Wachowski and Lily Wachowski, I want to make sure that I um, got their names right. Obviously, the cast is iconic. Look at that. They are icons in each of their own ways, except for maybe Cypher. Joe Pantoliano, Joey Pants, as he's called. I've mentioned, I've called him Joey Pants on this show before. He, I mean, he just looks like that. That's what Joe Pantoliano looks like. But, like, look at these three. These three. Iconic. Iconic. Obviously, we know this group. Keanu Reeves, Neo. Um, in many respects, like the uh the movie that launched him, not into like stardom, he was already a star by then, but kind of sort of launched him into like super stardom. There's you know, the there are those movies that go, okay, yeah, that's a leading guy, you know, people like him, and to like like Fresh Prince, Will Smith. Right. He does French Prince of Bel-Air, the, the show. And he was in a couple of movies uh, around that same time. Six Degrees of Separation was one of them. But it was. And so he was like known. And then Independence Day. Boom. You know, that kind of thing. So I, I'm pretty sure Keanu Reeves really owes a, his superstardom to this movie and the training that he got to be able to do roles like Constantine, which was really physical, you know, obviously John Wick, so on and so forth, right? Then we have Lawrence Fishburne. I mean, come on, Lawrence Fishburne. Come on. Come on. 
There's nothing bad to say about this guy. He is a phenomenal actor. Obviously, the last of the Trinity is the Trinity, is Trinity. Carrie Ann Moss. Lovely. Um, I really do enjoy her net Marvel Netflix character of um, uh, Terry Hogarth. Um, she was really good in that. But anyways, phenomenal at Trinity, of course. Phenomenal at, uh, as Trinity. Other folks that are super famous because of this role and this role alone, we've got Hugo Weaving. No, he, I mean, he was famous. He was Elrond, of course, after that. But um, Hugo Weaving, like Agent Smith. Oh, my God. Amazing. Amazing, amazing, amazing. And uh, Joe Pantoliano, as I said, plays a foil, a uh, cipher. Uh, we'll talk about cipher in a little bit. Uh, and then, uh, you know, a few uh, other characters here and there. And then uh, some some additional stars were added in the uh, follow-up films, uh, Reloaded and uh, Revolutions. Truth be told, um, while The Matrix is top five film of all time for me, I actually like the action in Reloaded far more. I know some of it looks like goofy CG, especially like the um, All Smiths battle uh, on Neo in the schoolyard. And some of it looks really cartoony, but I mean, 2003, it's not terrible. So, uh, but it is my, it, it, of the four, it is the best. I, I, to me, it has the best action. Um, it also has a um, heist element to it that I really like. Uh, with getting the uh, getting into the architect's uh, little control room thing, a little heist element to it. I really enjoy that. And the um, freeway that they built. So while The Matrix as a whole is top five film for me, Reloaded is not a top five film. It's actually <laughs> somewhere. It has the best action of the franchise. That's what I'll say there. Uh, so a couple of other additional names that were added in uh, further films include e, uh, Jada Pinkett Smith um, as Niobe and a few other people. Um, perhaps Reloaded, the 2003 um, MTV Movie Awards had my favorite uh, parody uh, intro bit. When You know when award shows used to do parody intro bits? Oh, God bless. God bless Billy Crystal. He's so good. And he made those pretty standard. Anyways, Justin Timberlake and Sean William Scott doing the MTV Movie Awards parody of The Matrix Reloaded was Chef's Kiss, dear listeners, Chef's Kiss. So, I mean, it was a good, it was a good, it was a good movie to follow up on. Anyways, there's not really more to say about the film's Without jumping directly into the meat of the bones, the meat on the bones, so to speak. So let's just jump right into the psych of the Matrix film franchise. So the first thematic psych idea slash concept that I want to talk about to kick us off for this episode is what the writers and directors, the Wachowskis, 
have said about the films after they came out. So there wasn't a lot of talk about the film's meaning right after it came out. I think what was really was what everybody else was talking about. I mean, they put so many things in it. Like, there are a ton of things that I wrote down today that I had to cut down. I was like, mm, I can't, I had to, I'd be, you know, this is going to be a two hour long episode or something like that. So it cuts things down. And so there's a lot of uh, meaning in the movies themselves that people could find elsewhere. But the main thing that I wanted to talk about uh, to start the episode here was the trans allegory that the Wachowskis have recently, I would say in the last 15 or so years, uh, 10 to 15 years, uh, have have confirmed it, have said that it is an allegory for their own struggles, their own grapple with their transitions. For those that don't know, the Wachowskis are trans women, Lana and Lily, and they used the story of the Matrix to essentially verbalize and make art out of their personal struggles. I it's it's a phenomenal thing to have learned later. It's it's interesting not having an understanding of um transgender identities in the early 2000s. I mean it, I didn't really know much about it, I will say, in 20, less than 20, or yeah, less than 20 years ago. I didn't really know too much about what it meant to be trans, what trans was. Uh, so it was not something that uh, I talked about uh, on the internet, on fan forums. It's not something that was discussed at the time. And for it to come out from the horse's mouth basically that it is a trans allegory that it, it makes it even that much more beautiful um the the first movie was direct written and directed by what you may consider their previous selves um you know identities that are no longer who they are or were uh, masks of who they really were, uh, being in the closet um, as trans women. And so they kept it hidden as well. And so they used this story to share their struggles. And because they were, <laughs> they're, they're super into like goth and metal and just like this iconic look with the leather and all of that, they were all into that uh, for various reasons. Um, and, you know, it's a really great futuristic style. And, of course, the Matrix takes place in the future. And so they added this style and they added guns because they knew people would go and see a movie with guns. And they told their story. I think it's beautiful. I think it's beautiful. And uh, you can find a dime a dozen uh, articles on the Internet that explore 
their exact words in the the interviews and where they go on to confirm that trans allegory. But I, I do want to just point out the details that I found in the movie that that point to this allegory. Because, again, later in the show, I'm going to talk about uh, I, I'm going to talk about other major thematic elements that are grounded in psychological concepts that can also take the place of the trans allegory or not, not, not essentially not take the place maybe, but more or less be the louder of the set for whomever, whatever. I don't know if that makes sense. So, I wanted to jump in with this one because, of course, there are tons and tons of pieces of evidence throughout the movies. Uh, and, and, and like I said, we're going to focus on the first one because it has by far the most. So first and foremost, let's focus on Neo. In The Matrix, his name is Thomas Anderson. Mr. Anderson. That's my best that is my best Hugo Weaving Agent Smith. I don't think it gets any better than that, so I'd stop trying. Mr. Anderson. All right. So Neo is his uh, quote-unquote alter ego. At least that's what it's presented as at the beginning. You know, his, his username, his Usenet name, you know, early, his uh, IRC name or something like that. <laughs> his early... <laughs> His early chat handle. So he goes by Neo on, I guess, what we would consider the dark web now. You know, hiding behind a lot of things. You think he's kind of dealing in drugs. And, uh, you know, they're telling him to follow the white rabbit and stuff like that. And he's like, what are you talking about? And so he sees a white rabbit. And he goes. He follows that white rabbit. He meets Trinity. Before I get to Trinity, though. Let's go back to Neo and this duality of Thomas Anderson. Thomas Anderson it is, is his quote-unquote name in this world. But he prefers to be called by Neo. And it's not actually a preference. It's more of a demand, right? And since all of us have names, we all sort of demand that... We are called by the name that we prefer, that, that we want to be called by. I shouldn't use the word prefer. And this is one of the clearer examples of the trans allegory throughout the film because it represents the duality of transitioning. It represents one identity to the next because we carry so much in our identity with just a gender. Because with a gender comes norms and expectations. There comes gender expression, right? And then sexual orientation. Gender really carries a lot of weight. And a, and, and a lot of stuff comes with this. And so it's, it's a massive change. And that... That duality of Thomas Anderson versus Neo is that duality that exists in transitioning, as far as I'm aware. Of course, I am not trans, so I can't imagine the, that expectation, but that's how it, it, it feels 
as presented in the film. So Neo and uh, Thomas Anderson. And uh, the the whole Mr. Anderson with Agent Smith, Agent Smith here represents this sort of societal pressure of uh, you, you have biological male parts and hormones and therefore your gender it also has to be man sort of this like you don't get to make that choice that choice was made for you and you have to deal with it we all have to deal with it that's that's what agent smith sort of reflects society saying the binary is how we're going to do it and sorry you don't get to make the change from what you were assigned and that's critical there because when we're talking about what sex letter gets put on your birth certificate, that is sex assigned at birth. Assigned. What does that mean? It means somebody gave you a designation. And of course, who are you to argue? You're just a baby. So the point here is that in this duality, this transition for Neo is the struggle. And then he's got this outside force of Agent Smith constantly calling him Mr. Anderson, Mr. Anderson. It's a process that uh, has been referred to as dead naming when somebody refuses to accept a new name of a uh of a trans woman or a trans man and so they keep calling them their dead name their old name a name of their previous gender and it's specifically called dead naming when somebody does it with malicious intent if you make an if you accidentally you know refer to a recently transitioned person We'll say, like, at the time of Caitlyn Jenner's transition, if you accidentally uh, refer to her as Bruce right after the transition, but then you apologize, that's not dead naming. That's not the act of dead naming. Dead naming is malicious intent behind using the wrong name. And Agent Smith constantly dead names Neo. So much so that at the end uh, or toward the end of their subway brawl, he gets up and he's like, my name is Neil. My name is Neil. You won't get any better. The finest Keanu Reeves impersonator. The finest. Even better than him. Wait, wait. Want to hear? Want to hear? Whoa, so good. <clears throat> I know Kung Fu. All right, other examples of the trans allegory through mainly, like I said, throughout the first movie Morpheus and Trinity, the sidekicks of all sidekicks, are supportive others. They are the ones who let you in, or you let in to your inner circle. And they want to help the transition. They want to shepherd the new identity to where it needs to be. Of course, 
Neo becomes the one at the end of the first movie. Kind of the guide through the trials and tribulations that come with non-cis-gendered, which is same gender, same gender as uh, sex assigned at birth. So our our cisgendered society, you know, where men and women are males and females, but also heterosexual uh, societal pressures, right? There's a lot of guff and pain and terror and all sorts of bad vibes for anyone that exists outside a, we'll call it arbitrary, norm. And so Trinity and Morpheus are those. And maybe they represent real people. I've heard that they all could also represent aspects of of one's mind. You know, I'm not going to dive into like the Freudian stuff, but just like aspects of a transition that I'm not really sure of. So I don't know the full extent of their characterization within this allegory. But they sort of act like um, confidants and guides and things like that. Others um, with intimate knowledge of the transition or uh, helping find way away, we'll say. Now, one of the ones, the the third one that I want to talk about is probably the one that gets the most discussion, I would say, within this allegory, this trans allegory. The idea of the red pill versus the blue pill, a ton of ways you can take this whole thing. But within the allegory itself um, is the red pill, you know, as it represents the it to to Neo in the Matrix, a tracer that will help them find him in a sea of pods, but really to live freely, right, to live outside of the bounds of whatever mind prison he's been put in the matrix right the matrix is the antagonist here so that's the red pill but in real life within the allegory this is the ability the choice to live freely as your identity to be who you are without condition or without fear, right? So that's what the red pill is, to be able to be who you are for whatever that is. Whereas the blue pill represents, you know, going to back to some sort of mind prison to not be who you want to be, to wear a disguise, to wear a mask, to sort of almost be like (laughs) my son got a uh, Minecraft mask for Halloween. And so it's like you wear this big block head. And it's almost like since the Matrix is a computer program, we'll just use Minecraft as an example here. It's like everyone has the same Minecraft head and because it's an 8-bit characterized animation style, there isn't a lot of detail. So you're kind of just like walking through life as the same as everyone else. 
they really do a good job of showing this, albeit in a different context, in the construct in the first film where they're trying to show Neo how anybody can be an agent and to always pay attention. And of course, the lady in the red dress is like, what about the lady in the red dress? And he turns around and he's staring at a desert eagle uh, of an agent because he wasn't paying attention, blah, blah, blah. But if you notice, everyone around them in this fake scene looks the same. Everyone is the same. And that's what the blue pill really represents. It represents being the same, conforming, doing what you're supposed to do for the sake of doing it for society's sake. Something like that. The Matrix is a system, Neil. That system is our enemy. When you're inside, you look around, what do you see? Businessmen, teachers, lawyers, carpenters, the very minds of the people we are trying to save. But until we do, these people are still a part of that system and that makes them our enemy. You have to understand, most of these people are not ready to be unplugged. And many of them are so inert, so hopelessly dependent on the system that they will fight to protect it. Were you listening to me, Neo? Or were you looking at the woman in the red dress? I was... Look again. Freeze it. So blue pill hiding your identity. Obviously, in the trans allegory, it's obviously remaining in the closet, so to speak. Right? Remaining, keeping that aspect of your identity hidden, which for a lot of people is psychologically damaging to constantly be looking over shoulder, um, not doing or saying the wrong things. It weighs on a person. That's why it's not healthy to keep secrets. Everything, everywhere you run, run into, not healthy to keep secrets. Secret secrets are no fun. Secrets will kill you in the long run. <laughs> See? The rhyme. It's rhymes. It means it's true. My, my, my last piece on this one uh, is there's a character in the first film. Goes by the name of Switch. Now, interesting tidbit that I found at um, this Vox article. So I was reading through this and I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Because there's just one little piece of tidbit that really drives the trans allegory home and the sort of caught between two worlds as epitomized in a character that you're probably not really paying all that much attention to. Um, so there's a character in the first film. Her name is or her or him or they. Not really sure at this point um, after reading this article. The character of Switch. They are played by a female actor um, who presents a somewhat feminine, a little masculine at, at uh, from what I can tell, but I don't really know. But in the film, what is in the theatrical release, of course, so what is what is canon in this universe? Uh, Switch is played by a female actor in both the Matrix and in the real world. Um, very gender fluid kind of uh, expression done by the filmmakers on purpose, of course. 
But early in the planning of the film, they actually wanted Switch to be played by a man, by a male actor in the real world to really hit home the idea of residual self-image, uh, and uh, which is something they'll get into in a little while. Uh, this idea of who we think we are in the the Matrix. Um, I thought that was wonderful. Male actor in the real world, and the woman who ultimately played her uh, or that character uh, in Matrix, but ended up being the same person for both because Warner Brothers rejected it they didn't they didn't think audiences would get it so they had scrapped it they scrapped that idea interesting right he's gone goodbye mr anderson so you see you can So the next major theme that I wanted to talk about for this episode was the one that spoke to me as a youngin, which was the religious allegory that is carried throughout the film. And I have to imagine that um, while the trans allegory was the stated emphasis and broad theme of the films, especially the first one, they had to they had to know that they were building a biblical story, a biblical story where all of the characters neatly and I mean neatly, even some of the side characters fit neatly into people and aspects in the Bible, the religious stories of Judeo Christian history. Okay, so obviously. It's there. And we'll take the giant elephant in the room, and then we'll take the other giant three elephants. Neil, I mean, it's blatant in the first movie, but of course expanded on in the second and third. Resurrections kind of does it again. I'll get to that one in a second. All right, Neil. He's the one. How do I know that? 
Well, they say it throughout the film quite a bit, but now stay with me. Neo is an anagram for one. Huh? Yeah. You saw that one coming. It's also Latin for new. Little tidbit. My first username on my Matrix forum back in 2003 was Neo Means New. Yep. That was my username. It's a pretty solid username because it is Latin for new. Who'd have thunk it, right? So I shortened that to NMN. Mouthful there. Um, shortly after that, because Neo Means New just kind of got really annoying to read all the time. So I shortened it. In any case, Neo is the one. Who is the one? Jesus. Jesus Christ. He's obviously the one, right? Trinity. Hold on. This one's hard. What aspect of Judeo-Christian beliefs is Trinity? Hmm. Yeah. The Holy Trinity. The, uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Or Holy Spirit, depending on how you say it. So obviously the Holy Trinity. And the reason why she, the character, is named Trinity is because she is the one who resurrects Jesus at the end of the first film. She's the one who does it. Uh, that, I mean, that, that's, her main, that's her main reason for being. Morpheus, Morpheus is a shepherd. He is meant to tell the chosen one, you are the chosen one. Gotta love chosen one prophecy stories. Morpheus is a shepherd to kind of shepherd along the chosen one on his path. You know, it's funny. When we talk about Jesus, we talk about him as a baby, like literally his birthday. And then we kind of just fast forward through his life. We don't really know what goes on. You know, how was toddler Jesus? How was middle childhood Jesus? Nobody really talks about that, right? And until, until he has his epiphany. He has his epiphany when he talks to John the Baptist. John the Baptist is like, there's this idea that we are, are meant to see the Lord to do stuff. I'm not going to go into all the stuff that he does, but to do stuff, right? To be... God on earth, basically, right? Right, so he has to, he has to go through uh, this knowledge, essentially, and that's really what Morpheus does for the, most, for the most part in the movie. In the beginning part of the movie, Morpheus is basically Mr. Exposition Dump, and he essentially just explains everything about the Matrix to everyone. This is the real world, Neo. This is the world as it exists today. Welcome to the desert of the real. We have only bits and pieces of information, but what we know for certain is that at some point in the early 21st century, all of mankind was united in celebration. We 
marveled at our own magnificence as we gave birth to AI. AI? You mean artificial intelligence? A singular consciousness that spawned an entire race of machines. We don't know who struck first, us or them, but we know that it was us that scorched the sky. At the time, they were dependent on solar power, and it was believed that they would be unable to survive without an energy source as abundant as the sun. Throughout human history, we have been dependent on machines to survive. Fate, it seems, is not without a sense of irony. So, we've got the three there. We've got Neo, Morpheus, Morpheus, and Trinity. Also, the three of them. Nice, nice trio, of course. The other interesting tidbit that I want to mention um, is that uh, there are a few named uh, ships, the this the floating the floating things as they go through the tunnels of of um, of the earth, you know, that were created by drilling stuff. I don't honestly know how the tunnels were made. The main ship that's named is the Nebuchadnezzar which is Morpheus's ship and Nebuchadnezzar is a uh, an important biblical biblical figure as well. I don't remember what's important about him off the top of my head, uh but he's there. I'm sh- I'm pretty sure. So obviously Neo is Christ, right? And he's supposed to uh free the people of Zion. Okay? Pretty on the nose there, right? I mean, this religious allegory is screaming at you. And maybe it was put there to sort of hide the religious allegory. But I don't know why they would want to hide that. So I'm not entirely sure. Maybe they wanted to to land better and not be viewed as as something deviant. You know, view it as like a, a... a Christ journey, a Christ-like journey in a science fiction hellscape kind of thing. Um, that sells better than, hey, this is a trans allegory. So, I mean, it, it screams at you, right? It's it's Jesus in the computer. It's I mean, the character at the end of Revolutions is called Deus Ex Machina, which is God from the machine, which is a common phrase use these days to represent you know some sort of god level change like a cheat code or something like that and you're like up they're saved everything is everything is fine now we like the eagles in lord of the rings they are a deus ex machina because they're literally like i'm flipping i'm gonna pick up the hobbits and then go away and save them or save gandalf or whatever right so neo is christ Trinity is the Holy Trinity. Morpheus is the shepherd. Okay. Christ is meant to bring down the oppression uh, to save humanity from sin, the glut of life, etc., etc. And to bring the establishment to its knees as told in the Gospels, right? And so, essentially, the movie acts as the Gospel according to ne- uh, to Morpheus, maybe? And 
not only to rid the world of the machines, but also free people's minds. And of course, there is a ulterior motive to freeing minds, which is, hey, have I have you heard the good news? Basically, like and that's really that's how the first movie ends. Like, I'm going to tell all these people what you're doing. And then he flies off into space like Superman Jesus. Okay. So what about some other characters and this religious allegory? I mean, who else can we apply? Uh, Well, Agent Smith. I don't know about this one. I've seen it a couple of ways, but the one that really sticks out to me is, is he a representation of the devil, the temptation of of a beautiful life but really not not beautiful right because for many people the matrix is hell and hell here going back to the trans allegory is leading a life hidden hiding one's true identity so agent smith sort of represents that kind of devilish agent Maybe the story of Lucifer. So if you're not familiar, the story of Lucifer, loosely, broadly, Lucifer was an angel, wanted to show God that he was A-OK and ended up going too far. And um, God stripped him of his wings and cast him out of heaven. And he was like, fine, I'll make my own place then. And that's where we get this like mixture of of uh, ideas about hell and who the devil is and that kind of thing. So agents and it's entirely possible that's the case because Agent Smith is an agent of the Matrix, blah, blah, blah. But then he goes rogue. Could be could be the story of Lucifer. Lots of other ways to interpret that as well. But I do like um, the Judas character, right? So because Neo is Christ, he he has to eventually sacrifice himself. I mean, I don't remember after seeing Reloaded, which came out in like the summer of 2003, and then they waited until November to release Revolutions of that year. I don't know if I was thinking in the summer of 2003 that, uh, you know, he's got a he's Christ. And so he's got to sacrifice himself for the good of of everyone else. But I mean, looking back on it in hindsight, and I do recognize this is hindsight, knowing now what I didn't know then that it's pretty obvious that they were setting up Neo to have to sacrifice himself. Not so much in the first film, but definitely in Reloaded and Revolutions. And of course, at the end of Revolutions, he does ultimately sacrifice himself um, to end the human robot wars, which we learn in Resurrections has lasted. They did reboot the Matrix. They did not kill Neo and Trinity, they actually resurrected them. Hence the name Matrix Resurrections. Uh, But you saw the trailer for that, so that's not really a spoiler. It's really an explanation as to how they're alive still. Uh, I wouldn't 
maybe that's a spoiler, maybe that's not a spoiler, but in any case, Christ, the Christ-like figure, has to sacrifice himself, and so Neo does. Uh, he also does this in the first Matrix film, obviously more blatant in the follow-ups than the sequels. But in the first film, he has to die before he becomes the one. He doesn't really sacrifice himself, so to speak, but he does die. And when he wakes up, he's like, I am the Matrix. Hence, I am God, right? But here's the, here's the fun detail about that. Trinity basically gives him true love's kiss for him to wake up at the end of the first film to to come back to life. She kisses him in the real world, which jumpstarts his brain in the Matrix, and he defies the programming of the Matrix because he is the one. Of course, we find out later in Reloaded, the second film, that this is all an elaborate way to deal with um, humans rejecting several incarnations of the Matrix. So they create this program that runs on a, on a loop, basically. And every time that program resets, a new incarnation of the Matrix is then born. And this whole one program re repeats itself. So it's like, whoa, that's crazy. But that's essentially what it is. And so there's your religious allegory. I mean, I can't really say too much more about I mean, there's a ton more to say, but I can't really say too much more without like getting into the super weeds of it all. I remember reading you. I don't think people understand how much I spent reading about the Matrix in 2003 and 2004. A lot of time. Now, I wish those sites still existed, those early fan base forums. I really wish those sites existed. I really wish that the internet still was kind of like that, where you could just spend hours about talking about things that didn't really matter with complete strangers. And you didn't feel like uh, you didn't feel like you were going to go crazy, which is what the Internet is like today. Howdy. Thanks for listening to this episode. We hope you're enjoying the conversation. Over the past two years, the podcast has grown, and that's mostly in part to folks like you, the listeners. We've also had wonderful luck receiving support from the Society for the Teaching of Psychology, APA Division II Small Partnerships Grant. It's been a fun ride, and we want to keep it going. So we need your help. There are several ways that you can support this show. You can share episodes with your social media networks so we can grab new listeners. You can join our fledgling Patreon program. You can contribute directly using PayPal. Or you can purchase some sweet merchandise with our logo at our Spreadshirt merch store. All of those things can be found on the website cinemasychpod.swanpsych.com. But perhaps the best thing that you can do is to keep listening and leave us feedback on Facebook or Twitter so we know you've listened. 
Thanks. And now back to the show. So the third topic that I wanted to talk about in this episode is perhaps the sticking out like a sore thumb topic, which is simulation theory. Yeah. You didn't think I was going to talk about that one, but yeah, obviously. Why wouldn't I talk about the Matrix and simulation theory? Would that be too on the nose? Yes, it would be. And we're going to do it. We're going to do it. Obviously, we're going to do it. Okay, so simulation theory. What is it? Well, it's actually a fascinating uh, topic. And I think going to the Wikipedia article is a good place to start. So the film came out in the first film, excuse me, came out in the late 90s, right? So it was being written and developed in, you know, that time period when the internet was new and computers were just getting in the hands of everybody. I mean, the 90s were a great time to have any kind of association with the early days of this tech. And now it's so ubiquitous. Uh, you're listening to this podcast episode uh, on on a tiny little device that is far more powerful than it was, you know, 25 years ago, right? And so we have this initial idea of what a computer simulation is, right, with the internet. They got a lot of stuff right. I will give credit to the Wachowskis um, about what they thought the internet was going to be like. I mean, who would have thought everybody would want to just have avatars of who they are in real life. I mean, that's awesome. Talking with people, instant connections. I mean, it took a little while for instant connections, of course, but now we have them, right? So why not write a story about how we're all living in some kind of simulation? That's what simulate. That's what the heart of simulation theory or simulation hypothesis is all about this idea of living in a created space. So this is the definition. It's the proposal that regards the nature of existence that says all of existence, every single thing, is an artificial simulation, like a computer simulation, but doesn't necessarily have to be a a computer simulation. As far as I'm aware... Some folks have argued that uh, to consider it, to consider the fact that we are living in a simulation, quote unquote, I'm obviously not saying that we are. I, I don't I don't believe that we are. I'll just throw that out on the table. I don't think that we are living in a simulation. And I think that, as I'll mention, I think that the argument defeats itself immediately. But in any case, just to give it its fair share, to be charitable uh, about the simulation hypothesis with respect to the film, of course, um, is that it's constraining. So the idea here is that uh, to think it's a computer simulation, which it is, which is what the Matrix is, uh, they interface with it uh, as a simulation or as a computer simulation. Uh, that idea, though, broadly speaking, is more constraining than the possibility of organic kinds of simulations, which 
we are organic beings, and so maybe that's the kind of simulation that we are in. Simulated realities, that's the matrix. Proposed technology or any other kinds of things associated with a simulated um, reality would be able to convince its inhabitants, its participants, that the simulation is real. So, to put it another way, some people believe and some people argue that we are living in a matrix-like simulation. Doesn't necessarily have to be computer-based. Doesn't have to be, you know, doesn't have to be that metaphor. But that we are in some sort of simulation. Okay. Running through some kind of set of algorithms that is eventually going to end. I guess. I I I it's a little far for me to go right now. <laughs> I'm not gonna go down that rabbit hole, although a big uh big influence on the story is of course through the looking glass by c.s lewis noted theologian uh very very religious man so i mean there's no surprise here that the that they can the inspiration that comes from through the looking glass and house in wonderland um also has a religious bent to it because of the writer. So we're all living in a simulation. Of course, the Matrix is about living in a simulation. And that the simulation seems real, feels real, is real. And the red and blue pill choice is a choice of accepting one's current reality or broadening one's mind to the simulation. Essentially pulling oneself out of the simulation. There are three premises to simulation theory. And rather than talking about those three rules, I want to say that physicists and noted physicist uh, Paul Davies has said that these three assumptions, I guess we'll call them, is called the trilemma. And the argument... Um, essentially reduces the trilemma, the fact that humans live in a simulation, which is the third proposition, the third assumption of the trilemma, essentially reduces itself down to what is called a near-infinite multiverse because there would have to be someone running the simulation. There would have to be some kind of entity running that simulation, and maybe there's some, but there is some entity running the simulation that's running the simulation, and then running the simulation that's running the simulation, and blah, 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 blah. And you end up with a principle called reductio ad absurdum, which is essentially, well, reductio ad absurdum means reduced to absurdity. And the idea here is that if I'm going to create a situation where some post-human species or some post-human entities are running some kind of simulation on human time, then what stops that post-human civilization from 
also running a simulation on post, you know, it becomes ridiculous at this point. This idea of a simulation gets pretty shaky and can be reduced to absurdity. And Davies, Paul Davies, physicist, goes on to argue that the simulation hypothesis, the idea that humans, um, that there exists a simulation and that humans are in it, like the Matrix, to be self-defeating, like it, it eats itself. And the, the interesting thing is I connect it to an idea that I've been really a, a big fan of in uh, recent years, which is, especially since I've been teaching sensation and perception, which is the idea that we all live, we all exist Animals, ever, everything, everything, everything that exists, exists in an objective reality adjacent reality. So there could be an objective reality. A matrix kind of idea would suggest that that can be curated. Cypher talking about the steak and the fact that he knows that the steak is just code but it tastes so good that real that re, that 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 subjective reality can be curated within this simulation idea but that the reality that we are in is the reality that we are in but we don't perceive it as the reality that everyone else is in so we are all reality adjacent it may be what it may be it's a very important choice of words. It may be what it may be, but we're never going to get to see that as individuals, as individuals. And this idea, I think, fits nicely with even the even like the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, right? Which is uh, you uh, don't know a th thing's position or something's superposition. I don't remember. I'm not a physicist. Uh, but the idea that um, if you observe something's momentum, you can't uh, observe its position. And if you observe its position, you can't observe its momentum. Beautiful. It's a beautiful message. And that's why I think, and that's, thanks for coming to my TED Talk. We are not in a simulation. That's, <laughs> I know that doesn't make any sense. But what I'm trying to say is that the Matrix isn't real, and since 1999, people have been saying, make a hand, but if the Matrix is real. And I really want them to shut up. I really, I really, really need people to stop saying, what if the Matrix is real? Yeah, it's called your brain. It is, it is called your brain, and... You have so many biases to thank for it. You are in your own personal matrix. Congratulations. You played yourself. Stop saying, stop saying, please. What if the matrix was real? What if we're in the matrix right now? We are not. And if we are, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to go find Morpheus?
You're going to go find Morpheus? You're going to be like, can I have a blue pill? I mean, can I have a red pill? No, you're not. What if the Matrix was real? Is the construct. It's our loading program. We can load anything from clothing to equipment, weapons, training simulations, anything we need. Right now, we're inside a computer program. Is it really so hard to believe? Your clothes are different, the plugs in your arms and head are gone. Your hair has changed. Your appearance now is what we call residual self-image. It is the mental projection of your digital self. This, this isn't real. What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, what you can taste and see, then real is simply electrical signals interpreted by your brain. This is the world that you know. The world as it was at the end of the 20th century. It exists now only as part of a neural interactive simulation that we call the Matrix. You've been living in a dream world, Neo. Okay, a couple of other psych concepts that I wanted to talk about that came up at various points of the films and various places and uh, that kind of thing. They don't really have thematic uh, qualities that fit a psychological perspective. They're just really cool psych concepts that I love that are sprinkled throughout that aren't really addressed in other movies or at least addressed as uh, interestingly uh, in as they are in this set of films. So, like I said, these are not connected to any broad major themes. They're just they're just random little things. And then uh, then we'll we'll end the episode. And uh, so, yeah, deja vu, deja vu. This one's so fun. Um, so in the in the movie, it's represented as a uh, as the Matrix changing something, right? It's some sort of quote unquote glitch in the Matrix, um, and so it represents something to outsiders, right? As in, like, oh crap, they just changed something. We're in trouble, so like we need to make sure we get out of here. And it's it's represented in the film as the literal same. Thing that occurs. So the first thing that um, Neo sees is he sees a black cat go through a um, as they're walking past a hallway archway. He sees a black cat go past, shake its head. And um, as they're going up the stairs, he hears the jingle of the cat again. And it's doing the exact same thing. He goes, oh, deja vu. And they're like, what? <laughs> what did you say? And then, of course, they get to the door that they're trying to get to, and it's a brick wall. So they they changed something. And in real life, deja vu is the inexplicable, so unexplainable feeling of familiarity about an experience that you you think you may have had. Uh, so deja vu is really all it is is a sense of film familiarity that has no source. So you're like, huh, 
that seems familiar to me. Something in my memory is pinging me, but there's no source for that ping. And what I mean by source is that, okay, I know, so I know that the Wachowskis uh, directed the, the film. How do I know that? Well, the source of that information came from the film itself, right? The credits. That's that's a source of information. So deja vu in the real world is experience of inexplicable familiarity. Can't explain the source. It's a source monitoring error, technically. And so in The Matrix, I love how they use this idea of like uh, this unexplainable sense that something is familiar and they they turn it on its head and they're like no 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 it's familiar because it was the exact same thing you did experience this before my friend and of course they had to bring that idea into the plot as a plot device and so it represents you know uh oh stuff's gonna go down uh oh right so that would be that's one of my that's that's one of my favorite little ideas as somebody who is not necessarily a memory researcher, but is very fond of the psychological aspects of memory. I love talking about memory. It's, it's so wild. The second one that I wanted to talk about is residual self image. So in the movie, Morpheus, as Mr. Exposition Dump, is explaining to Neo why after he got out of the Matrix and looks completely like naked with a bunch of holes in his head and then eventually his hair grows back and he's got a shaved head, you know, a little bit shorter than what I've got going on right now. He explains to Neo that, oh, you don't have any of your holes or anything like that, and your hair is all back to where it is because this is re- this is called residual self-image. Um, the idea re- behind residual self-image is that this is what we think we look like in the Matrix. This is what we think we are expressing to other people. And so when Neo goes back into the Matrix for the first time and he's got no holes and stuff like that is because not only is that what he wants to be, which is why the character of Switch would have been so, so cool um, with uh, Switch being played by a male in the real world and by a female in the Matrix, that would have been so cool for the trans allegory because of the residual self-image part. We all have self-images. Everyone has a concept and a photograph. If you are, you know, among the folks who can mentally image, right? You have fant- Fantasia, not a Fantasia. You can picture yourself in your head and so one of the things that I find myself doing sometimes is wondering how do I look to the person that I'm talking to it's like do I have something on my mouth um you know how does my beard look um are my eyes glazing over all those kinds of things and the reason why I probably do that quite a bit is because I'm constantly looking at my students faces and looking for clues like do they get what I'm saying? Are they bored? Do they not get what I'm saying? Are they laughing because I just 
told a joke. And the idea here is, is that we think about that. And so when we make a major change, so when I first started growing a beard about seven years ago, right, it took a while for the image in my head to be like, oh, I've got a beard on my face that changes the way that I look to other people. And it took a while for, for it to update. The interesting thing is that one of the clearer aspects of this is when a couple of summers ago, I grew out my beard quite a bit, which was ill-advised during the summer. But in any case, I did. I was like, I don't want to trim. I am done with school for the semester, and I'm just going to see how big I can get it. Ill-advised for the summertime. But I... It took me a while to be like, why are people like staring at my face? This is pre-COVID. Staring at my face because, you know, I had this giant bushy beard and it's not normally not normally what it was. Uh, so it took a while for my self-image to update in my mind. Now I can imagine that if I shaved my beard, which I'm not going to do, if I shaved my beard... How long would it take me to be like, oh, I don't have a beard on my face anymore? So that that to me is so that is it's so lovely. And they play a couple of features uh, of this on it or in the movie, which, you know, the real world is full of haggard people. They're dirty. They're dingy. Things aren't well lit. Uh, things feel like they're falling apart all the time. Um, and then when you go into the Matrix, it's all like, ah, lovely. You know, it, it feels uh, flashier and fancier. And, you know, it's played upon quite a bit in um, Matrix Reloaded, where the three of them have to go and speak to the Merovingian uh, in his fancy French chateau. Uh, and, um, and they go to the restaurant inside the chateau. And then they fight people in the chateau, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, it's very, you know, the, the 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 matrix seems clean and refined, whereas the real world is bleh, 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 bleh. and so when you go into the matrix, it's like, yeah, I'm looking, I'm looking good, I'm looking f sweet with this leather and these sunglasses. I mean, sunglasses. Maketh the man, right? And that's not manners, it's sunglasses. <laughs> sunglasses. So I, I always thought, um, especially after I learned about self-image and self-concept and all of the self-hyphen ideas in psychology, I always thought this was the really fun part of it, that they're like, oh, it's residual self-image. Obviously, now learning about the trans allegory, it makes even much more sense, right? Because it's who we want to express ourselves as, as opposed to who we are in the real world. And, and maybe those two things align, maybe they don't. Uh, and so let's explore when they don't, right? Because we don't see a lot of difference between Trinity um, in the real world and in the Matrix. I mean, we don't see a lot between Neo, his hair gets a little bit longer. Um, and we also don't see a lot of difference between Morpheus in the real world and in the Matrix. But we see a huge difference between Cypher in the real world, Cypher in the Matrix, and, of course, the whole abandoned idea with Switch, so on and so forth. So 
residual self-image has always been one of my favorite. And then, of course, I love how Lawrence Fishburne says it. Of course. Of course, of course, of course. The final one that I wanted to mention is the brain as a computer metaphor that is used throughout the the logic, the internal consistency of the film. Of course, humans are portrayed as the battery, so to speak, uh, for the machines. Of course, there have been numerous explorations about how unless you changed human biology in a significant way, we're not very good batteries, but they maybe found a way to be useful uh, for us to be useful by putting us in the matrix. I don't know. The architect talks about how like there were versions of the matrix, which were utopias and people rejected that. And so maybe if they rejected that they died because if you die in the matrix, you die in the real world, which is one of the weirdest rules ever because no, no, you don't die in your dream. You don't die in real life if you die in a dream. Like, no. I know we don't die in dreams. And the reason why we don't die in dreams is because we have no idea what happens after you die. That's why you don't die in dreams. I, I always thought that was pretty obvious. But we don't die in dreams because we have no idea how to figure that out on a subconscious level. I I will. That's a hill I'm willing to die on. If you have a better idea about how, uh, why we don't die in our dreams. As I always, I always, I always thought it was convenient that um, if you died in the Matrix, you died in real life. I always thought that that idea was just rather convenient um, plot device. Like it didn't have, it, it doesn't have any basis in reality. Um, now, there are ways in which our psychology impacts our physiology. Sure. Um, but I wouldn't go so far as to say that, uh, just because you're, just because your brain dies doesn't mean you, you die yourself or, you know, you spit out blood because you're getting punched by somebody in the matrix. A little bit of science fiction for y'all. But other than that, the brain as a metaphor is really, you know, the sticking of the giant, giant needle in the back of the head uh, to engage the upload, you know, to get back into the matrix, basically. And that's using this idea of the brain as a computer that you can connect a computer to it and it then acts like a computer. Our brains are not computers, and in many ways, we don't want them to be computers. Uh, there isn't good. There isn't a good reason that I've come across that would that would suggest that computers are better at navigating our environment than we are, as our brains currently exist. Now, that is not to say that we can't interface with computers we obviously interface with computers with our fingers and our hands with our eyes with our voices but we can also interface with them directly from our brain people are making uh incredible advances in brain computer interaction 
But the fact of the matter is, is that you cannot get a whole brain interaction with a computer. I don't think that's possible with how our brain distributes processing all throughout it. Granted, the giant, the giant uh, stick that gets stuck in the back of your head pretty much goes through all of the parts. I mean, we don't know how far it actually goes into a person's head. There's never been some... I would like to see somebody do a computer animation of like uh, an x-ray, you know, like a a real-time x-ray and just or MRI or something like that, showing how far that pin goes into your skull. Because that would really indicate how much is being touched by by that pin how much of the brain is being touched by that pin so (laughs) i always thought it was uh well i shouldn't say i always thought i at first i thought it was really cool but since you know being steeped within psychology and brain science and things like that i was like there's no way this would work there's no way (laughs) it's 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 really it's really weird Really weird. So you end up with a situation of pure science fiction across all fronts, right? Humans should not be batteries. Humans really can't interface with computers in the way that is being suggested. And I don't think if our evolution continues, I don't think that um, that's ever going to change. Like we are slowly evolving, of course. And we have no idea when these films are set in the future. The Matrix is set to 1999, so I don't know. Uh, The actual Matrix is like, it's 1999! You know, the time before the millennium and everything went to crap. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, It shows a really prime time without even realizing that 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 means it gets worse. Oh, I just had a revelation. An epiphany. You guys, the machine set the Matrix to 1999. It doesn't get better than than 1999. Oh, no. It really puts this last 22 years into perspective, I'll tell you what. All right. So, 1999, the best year, apparently. Uh, I, I, I don't know how far in the future. I don't know. I'm going to call no. Uh, That's going to be my expert opinion. No, you cannot stick a metal tube spike, spike into the back of somebody's brain through their brain. Of course, it does go through their brain and it's seemingly at the level of like the limbic system. But you would also need like frontal lobe access. And really, it's in the middle. It's in the medial portion of the brain, which means it's not getting cortex stuff. And, you know, we have a lot of language processing that only happens on the cortex. So, I mean, it's a bit of a stretch is all I'm saying. Well, with that revelation, I want to thank uh, you all for listening to my trip down memory lane and a little bit of uh, recent stuff with the Matrix Resurrections. But a trip down memory lane, a reason to talk about uh, a film franchise that I do actually kind of kind of love. I mean, like as a franchise, I do put it up at, on a pretty high, pretty high pedestal. So 
Um, thank you for listening to this episode. And until the next one, thanks for listening.